0: All right, so here we are, episode two of the story in the soil. Today, we're going to be looking at something that, I don't know if it's a misconception that people have, or maybe just a curiosity people have, but in general, um, people are, when they look at the past, or when you you kind of talk to anyone about their interest in the past, a lot of times, cities come up. Um, That may kind of sound too, uh, you know, Based on how we live today, it may sound kind of redundant saying cities come up, but if you look at the past, you know, you look at what people comes to mind, people will bring up, you know, Rome. Um, you can look at sort of early work looking for specific cities as well in archaeology, um, you know, historians working to, you know, figure out what, where certain locations were um, based on texts or, you know, some account we have in the past. So cities play a big role, I think, in how we do you know, the study of the past, a kind of, you know, very general term, but um, also in everyone's perception, the public's perception of it and what the public is interested in. It's not hard to figure out why. I mean, cities are exciting, right? They have a name. There are lots of people living in an area. Often there's a very distinct culture to them. You know, they may be part of a larger culture, but something very distinct about the city. And we see that even today. Anyone that's ever lived Pretty much any city, right? There's some sort of... You know, they do the food differently or you know, an accent or whatever. Cities have a very distinct feel to them. But in the topic of North American prehistory, which we'll, we'll look at pre-Columbian history. I'm not a big fan of prehistory as a term for it. because it kind of Eurocentric in that setting. Um, but the sort of pre-Columbian new world is often... Now I should say outside of you have Mexico, Mesoamerica. I shouldn't say Mexico, Mesoamerica, present-day Mexico, kind of down through the Yucatan, um, going down into South America as well, has a history of urban urbanness, right? We have cities developing there, um, and you do, to an extent have some in South America as well. But I'm specifically looking at kind of north of Mexico, because I think to a lot of people, what would become you know, the United States and Canada. There are some misconceptions on, I don't want to say the number of cities because city is a very loose term, which we'll get to in a second, but there is a, people, I think people view it a little differently than how it actually was. There, there are some tropes that kind of stick around, some stereotypes of Native Americans throughout sort of European arrival, but also beforehand, there's these views. And right off the bat, I think one of the biggest ones that people have is just this idea of the sort of pristine nature of the new world prior to European arrival. That things were just kind of—I'll you know, say—idyllic, um, but uh, they, they, it was different than the rest of the world. People acted differently here, and bull was—I mean, everywhere in the world is unique for their own reasons, right? It. It had its share of conflict, it had, you know, there were bad places to be, good places to be, right? Just like anywhere else in history. So I think right away, it's kind of a general, I mean, obviously it's almost like a straw man argument, right? But a big thing you hear people talk about is just this idea that the Americas prior to Europeans was just essentially, it was like a nature preserve, which it wasn't, I mean, there were people living here, they were going about their lives, just like there were anywhere else in the world. And part of that was cities. Specific moments. Um, there are some, which I keep saying we'll get to in a second, we will. Um, there are some aspects of pre Columbian life in North America that may be different than the old world, that may have also led to be less of a reliance on these like heavily populated, dense urban areas, but we see them. Um, and so I think right off the bat, it's kind of a hard thing to fine. A city is, its especially from nowadays for us, uh, I found it interesting, just looking at population history and urban areas in general, um, kind of you know, looking at it as a trend, and I found an interesting uh, fact that I guess in 1950, um, about 750 million people lived in an urban population, which would be something important to define <laughs> that is a hard thing to kind of define too but so an urban area you can imagine would be probably densely populated I have a list in a second but just kind of brainstorming an idea of what would an urban area be you're probably going to have a larger population than the outside area right you have a lot of people you know say the, the a river valley right 10,000 people live in it Now, maybe before a city develops, everyone kind of lives in these little communities throughout, right? Kind of equal size, some larger than others, but nothing to an extreme. A city would be, you know, you have 7,000 of those 10,000 live in an area that maybe in the past was the size of a couple of those communities. So you have a lot of people living in a tight area. Population density is probably the biggest thing, but also you're looking at just... Population density works, but at some point you can look at just sheer numbers, right? If everyone's living... Very independent life styles, and then all of a sudden you have 20,000 people living in an area that's relatively small. You could say, I oh, mean, you have to start looking at the data. And so, the definition I, I find it interesting, it's kind of a little bit antiquated um, an argument for what a city is or an urban area. I'm going to use urban area because cities got, there are, there are a lot of things tied into it. So for an urban area this is 1950 uh v gordon child he's an australian archaeologist he attempted to define what a sort of city or urban area would be and he had 10 kind of categories so i'm gonna go through it and some of them will be brief but otherwise you know kind of just just kind of talking through it because i think some of them are a bit outdated um, for you know present day use that you probably wouldn't hear many archaeologists using but In general, this is kind of, you can kind of go off of this as a starting point. So the first thing on the list, yeah, is the size and density of the population should be above normal. So that's going back to that example I had just a few minutes ago with, you know, there's a fixed number in the River Valley, and all of a sudden you have a community that has a lot more than any other communities had in the past in a very densely populated area. So there's just something about it that a lot of people are living in a smaller area. The second one, differentiation of the population. And specifically, um, that residents may or may not grow their own food. And he talks about specialists with this. And I think that's really important because that shows sort of the tie-in with agriculture that urban areas have. I don't know if you would say which one caused the other. Um, Kind of cross-culture, I don't think you would say that. But they're usually linked. There's usually some sort of tie-in. And what that is, is basically there's farming, whether it's you know, better harvests, better technology, for whatever reason, they're able to get more food than they were in the past. And so they can sustain more than just the farmers can sustain more than just themselves. Or at least there's a potential for it. And that allows individuals to not have to spend their day looking for food or subsistence um, means, you know, whether it's farming, hunting, gathering. That allows people to, to do something else. And they may, you know, specialists, you might get. Craftsmen, you might get artists. It allows a wider range, of, I guess, jobs, but it's almost like tons a day, right? most of us don't grow our own food. The third on the list that Gore, uh, V. Gordon job lists is payment of taxes to a deity or king. It, I, this one may be, I, yes, I think taxes, if you see taxes, probably coming, but I think that may be kind of more focused on a specific model of living, in a, you know, more, um, I don't want to say Eurocentric because taxes are everywhere, but I think that maybe getting a few steps ahead of sort of what is a city. Because at the end of the day, you know, finding taxes is kind of hard, right? Is it taxes if I, you know, taxes are a cut of what I do, but what if we all get together to live in a city as almost a, uh, as a means of almost insurance, right? That I, you know, enough people living there, they can support each other. We all contribute a portion to a communal thing that someone runs, and then can be distributed to everyone else. I mean, that'd be taxes, but I don't think it's a different mindset of you know a king saying you owe ten percent, regardless of how productive everyone else is. The fourth he lists is monumental public buildings, which makes sense. I mean, I, again, I don't know. I think maybe the public buildings part is probably the big thing there to focus on—the fact that you. These are these structures that are for the community that are basically put together whether it's it's almost like removed from the community building them that there's this communal leadership or maybe not communal leadership but everyone's buying into someone as a leader and through that resources are allocated to make something that maybe independently people couldn't do i think that's a good thing to look for but again i wouldn't say i don't know how specific that is. I don't know how, how well that ties in always because we do see monumental architecture, monumental buildings, monumental structures built without a city. The fifth E-lists are, um, again, kind of going back to the second, uh, about people produce not, being, not producing their own food and that they're supported by leadership. Um, I... Yeah, I mean, again, that's a very specific thing, and so... I think that's a good thing to look for, right? If you're seeing a centralized support of you know, arts or you know theater or whatever, that, that might be a good indication that there's some sort of central government and that's usually a tie-in with a city. So again, this, this may be a situationally specific thing that you might have to look out for. And so the sixth, systems of recording and practical science. And this ties with the seventh. The seventh is a system of writing. And I these ones, we don't have writing north of Mexico. North of Mesoamerica, but we see cities. For I don't think writing is as big a thing to look for, um, and that's a, that is an old world specific model. I, I, yeah, I would I would writing I don't know if it's as important to make this list. Development of symbolic art that's a very vague description, um, you know. Symbolic art has been going on as long as we've been human, arguably, and there may even be closely related human, you know, or closely related ancestors or cousins or whatever you want to call them. There may be symbolic art there. I don't. I think that's more of just a belonging to our genus thing than it is cities. I mean, you see art without that. Ninth on the list is trade and import of raw materials. Again, trade occurs, but the argument is that. I think this goes back to the sort of specialists that you have people who can afford to bring in materials and have essentially a market to sell them, right? You have people who are building things, constructing, crafting far more than just for survival or for a communal setting. These are people who do it for a living. Um, and so you, you can kind of look at that. Trade is, is definitely assisted by having permanent settlements. And finally, he talks about specialist craftsmen from outside the kin group, and that's really getting at The fact that you're leaving these sort of kinship bonds is what defines your community. In, I don't say non, you can say non-sedentary populations, but also just kind of, for the most part, for most of human history, people live with family, or at least some sort of kin group. Maybe it's not directly blood-related, but there's some sort of kinship. I think cities are this sort of, you may still live in an area with your family, but there's definitely an idea that these people who you have no way you may not even know everyone there, but you're part of the group. And so there is a connection there that goes beyond kin group and that you have craftsmen who are developing things, regardless of who, you know, basically they're just selling their talents. So I think the biggest thing you boil down those 10 is just basically that you have lots of people living in an area supported by more food than was produced previously. Allowing for people to specialize in things that aren't directly related to survival. You start having more abstract professions. And that is a huge step. I mean, that is a big thing. We you know, hunter-gatherer groups usually imagine that, you know, they have idea, or arguably easier days in the sense that they don't have to work as much for food, but at the same time, their job is to survive. And a lot of times in urban areas, you start, I mean, you can see it today. Right? How many of us have to work every day? How many of us have to expend energy during the day to literally survive? Right? You're not going out and hunting food. You're going to the store that was produced by someone else, brought in by someone else, right? You have all these networks between you and survival. And I think that's a good way to look at a city as well. So from that, I guess you have the definition of an urban area, kind of a rough idea forming. But how common in history? study the past are cities. And I found some interesting, I found a good wide range of statistics, but it's actually the Encyclopedia Britannica has some interesting ones, specifically for Europe. And I kind of want to do this because we're going to pair it of that sort of Colombian exchange in a second. But the proportion, this is from Encyclopedia Britannica, the proportion of Europeans living in cities of 10,000 or more residents by 1,500, AD was about 5.6% of the total population. By 1550, it increases to 6.3%. So, I mean, over 50 years, you get a 0.7% increase. So we jump ahead to 1600, so 50 years after that 1550. It goes from 6.3% to 7.6%. And then by 1650, we're at 8.3%. So we're seeing this and i don't know if we consider it rapid—but there's an increase. People are living in cities, but at this time, over ninety percent, even by 1650, over ninety percent of the population doesn't live in a community of more than ten thousand residents. And so, I think that kind of, and from that, I mean, just remember that this is around the time of you know, the Columbia Exchange—you get old world meets new world. We had this idea that it was like you know, this urban Europe meeting the primitive old world or primitive new world. Sorry, it wasn't. I mean, most of Europe is living in a rural setting, and so I mean, I think that immediately kind of shows the the flawed thoughts of thinking of the old world and new world being, you know, defined by all oh, their cities and civilization. It just shows how cities do not factor into the argument of. We want to look at technological advancement. I mean, having cities helps for that, but you know, most Europeans did not live in a city. In fact, you know, 90% didn't live in rural areas. They may have interacted with the city, but you have a lot of people living very rural. And in fact, I found that, as I mentioned earlier, by 1950, we yeah, <clears> have <throat> about $750 million since then. Actually, in 2009, there was a flip finally. Um, there were more people living in urban areas than living in rural areas. About 3.42 billion people living in an urban area compared to 3.41. And that's in 2009. As of 2014, uh, the urban population was about 3.4 billion people. So that's a huge flip. Over 50% of the world's population is living in an urban area today. So between, you know, the interaction, basically the world prior, if we want to, if we want to Great day one, as you know, the old world meets new world. Everything since then has been a has been this drive, you not know, drive, but people become far more urbanized. At the time, not as much. Even over the centuries, not as much. And so, I think that's the sort of viewing even just asking in general why didn't people live in you know north america why weren't they living in cities well no one was at this time period anywhere and people were but you look at 90 percent of europe lived outside a city i think it's fair to say that most people didn't um, so but from that you know there to be fair there are a lot more cities in this time period in the old world than the new world there just are and so why is that? Well, I would argue, and I shouldn't say I would argue. I think a big part of that is just resources available. Not so much in terms of when you think of resources, you would think of mineral deposits or, 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 or I guess, um, things you know, things you can exploit and utilize, but at the very core of just in general resources in terms of just subsistence. And North America is interesting, especially Eastern North America. I'm gonna focus primarily on East you kinda of think of maybe the plains ish along the Mississippi, you know, kind of most from Mississippi towards the Atlantic, eastern woodlands. It's a very resource rich region. Very resource rich. You have rivers, streams, lakes, full of you know food, essentially just food. You have the, uh, the, coast. the coast, you're never that far from the coast. And even if you aren't directly interacting with the coast, you're probably interacting with people who can interact with the coast. And with that, you have marine resources, which is still to this day you know, a huge benefit. You also have you know, large mammals you can hunt. So you have mammals you can hunt, I guess you could say, in general, you have birds as well. You have lots of things to, to forage. Um, forests themselves are tremendously helpful. Um, grasslands are great for supporting large herbivores like deer Um, bison bison are a huge one, it's kind of a stereotypical one but that's definitely throughout history we see bison being used by eastern or across North America specifically looking at eastern woodlands groups you have them going out hunting bison bringing it back, bison scapula being used and tool, we're seeing them being utilized what this all gets to is the fact that the f- consumption of just, there's, there's no, a big part of cities, if you view them as sort of like a hedging your bets, right? Everyone gets, people might start settling in an area because it's more resource rich or maybe it's a central location or maybe someone's generating a food that people can live alongside them. It's kind of a, it's, it's keeping yourself kind of one foot in, one foot out. It's keeping you safe. You know you have others to rely on for food consumption. A lot of times they're on river valleys, but they might be in a more desert region. I don't think that's. should come as any surprise because this means it's an area where lots of people wanna live and so lots of people will live there and kind of group together. But in North America, we, we don't see this. I think it's just because literally there's enough food to go around. People don't need to live I mean really urban living. It's a lot of times you can see it's detrimental to health, right? You have disease that can spread a lot quicker. There's a lot of bad things about living in a city a lot of good things, but it definitely isn't just a great, you know, something that the next level that people want to get to. And so I think that's a big part of it, is that just the resource density and just the ability, you don't have to expend a lot of energy to go out and collect enough food. And even as you do, you're not traveling. You know, it's not as if you're moving up the river, perhaps. It's a different animal. And I think that's a big reason that even if you start seeing a city forming, that perhaps we don't see it in North America as well. Uh, just the fact that there's nothing holding me to the city. Right? Especially if it's a newer. you know, people start living together. I can look out into the countryside and see, well, I could live out there, right? People leave the city. I think that's part of it, too. There's no, you know, once I start living there, it's it's not as if, you know, we're in a river valley in the desert. I won't say the desert, That's not fair, but, you know, kind of a more isolated area with specific areas you need for food, you know, to, to get enough food or water or whatever resources you need. Or I have to become part of the system that's in place. I think in Eastern North America, you're seeing it's easier to, to just leave the system that are being formed or even just have your own system. Maybe it's not even a dominant system in place. So mainly a claim to a resource, but I can easily go, well, you may control this part of the river. I'm going to move up river. Right? Or I might move, you know, 100 miles east. I mean, maybe it's a big, you know, maybe it's a decent track, but some of your 100 miles east still resource rich, but you don't have to deal with the, the guy who's trying to lay claim to it. And there's just more fluidity to it. So I think that leads kind of to what I think personally, and I, would, I think others may agree, um, sort of the, the best example of... Both a pre Columbian North Mesoamerica city, as well as the sort of why cities may not have latched on as well, or may not have, you know, I mean, why we don't see them lasting, why do the Europeans arrive and you don't have towns of 20, 30,000 people, right? And that's Cauquia, which is, 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 to me, one of the most interesting and fascinating sites in North America. If you're not familiar with Cauquia, you should definitely. Um, read up on it, whatever you want to do to learn about it. It's, it's, it's fascinating. But we're going around 1050, 80, or 950, 1050, kind of in that range, you have this area. It is just east of present-day St. Louis, just across the Mississippi. Uh, and kind of would have gone into St. Louis as well. But you have, what we're going to go back a little bit further, actually. Around 600, you start having these communities there in this area. Nothing large at all. Kind of the standard. Right? They live in Probably horticulturalists, which is sort of blend of of farming, but also hunting and gathering. Where it's it's honestly the fact we have a term horticulture for it is kind of redundant because I think this is how most people throughout history, if there is any farming, are going to live. You think about you you have a small garden for your your community or your small group, and you supplement it with hunting and gathering. Really, it's just eating what you have available, right? Uh, We call it horticulture. You can you know it's just. Not putting all your eggs in one basket. But they're living in very distinct groups. We can see it, right? This is you know, for a good period of time. They're, they're living in a way that kind of standard. I don't want to say standard, but it's different than what's about to happen. So around 950, 1,000, 1050, that range, you see this switch almost, where these existing communities are living in the way their communities are laid out, you know, some homes, some structures. It changes. We see it. I mean, so they're torn down and there's they're built. Structures are built, rebuilt uh, in a manner that we associate with what would become Cahokia. You start seeing a central, you can call it a grid, and it's a planned city. And it seems to me the people who lived in the area are buying into it as well. I mean, they're rebuilding their communities to fit this larger view. And within by 1050, you're going towards, you know, yeah, about, let's say 1050, 80, it's probably a safe number to put it at. you looking at 20,000 people, probably ten twenty thousand 20,000 people living here. And by the height, uh, you know, Cahokia starts declining at 1250, kind of in that range between 1050, 1250. You're looking at probably 30,000 people living in this area, which is is huge. And actually, I found some interesting um, numbers, just got kind of population of cities around this time period. And Cahokia, Moncocchi is 20, 30,000 people. It is long. actually the same size as Florence at the time. And we're, there we go. It's the same size as London. Now, London at the time was smaller. I'm not as knowledgeable in London's history, but at this time, you consider London to be a city, right? With the same population living, but in pre Columbian North America. Just interesting. And so from that, we see, it's. I mean, they have strong ties to the, not only to the city itself, we see Monk's Mound is built, but you also have other, Monk's Mound is a, a large mound. I think I talk about it in episode one. And there's some sort of hierarchy associated with it, possibly some sort of leadership living atop it, using it to address the masses. We see trade. Trade's always occurring in North America, but Hokia seems to really... Don't rely on trade, but they feed on trade, they like trade. There's goods coming in and out. We're seeing things moving in, but also moving out, right? So, because a facilitator, but it's also almost like they're buying. I don't want to use buying, that's a, a very you know modern view of it, but they're, they're bringing in resources, these exotic goods and non exotic as well, just regular goods that may have been accessible. But also, we see exotics coming in, right? So, you see. And there's association with leadership and higher social hierarchy becoming I mean, a lot more distinct with you know, people having, right? I mean, literally just people having and people not having things. Just seeing it really, really it's, it, it takes off pretty quick. And given the short time frame of all this, there are definitely it, it's one could imagine we don't have any accounts obviously of this that we're looking at individuals or groups or small numbers of people who were causing this to happen. I don't know if we're looking at a charismatic leader or what, but there seems to be very much power occurring. And it's around this time, you get a few hundred years earlier, you get maize coming into the area. But even before that, we have people who were living and able to sustain themselves. But this is very different. We're seeing different leadership, right? You're having what appears to be hierarchies. You don't really see that before this, or at least not to this extent, where people are clearly above someone else. People are living in denser areas. People are eating differently. Just life changes completely. And this is over 150, 200 years. I mean, it's a very short amount of time. They go from living not in cities to in cities. It becomes urban. Life becomes very urban. But then the decline happens. And that's 1250. You can start looking at it at kind of going on for the next 100 years or so. But it seems like people just kind of shrug their shoulders and left. Um, there doesn't seem to be, you know, it wasn't that they're conquered or taken over or, you know, a revolt happened. I mean, there may have been more, a little more conflict happening towards the end, but it definitely seems like people just said, oh, okay. And they bring, they go back to other communities, but also they have, they still, we still see elements of Kokian life being brought with them. So they're still buying into this idea. They just don't want to live in the city anymore, pretty much. And we see remnants, Mississippian, Kokias, or this little Mississippian, Middle Mississippian culture, we see aspects of it lasting until European arrival, um, kind of spread out across the southeast. So it had a long-lasting impact. We can even see the sort of linguistic distribution in Eastern North America. You can kind of see how the rivers and how Hapokia itself may, I'd say Mississippian groups in general, kind of influenced this, you know, where people went, kind of diverging of groups. So it has a long-lasting impact, but we have no accounts of it. Now, this is a time there's no writing. So I guess Gordon Child, the Gordon Child would say it's not a city. Or maybe he wouldn't add that. That's just <laughs> more of a joke. But there's no writing, so we don't have any accounts from the time. But really once kind of through the present there are there are no when Europeans arrive, it's not as if someone's living in the city of Kokia itself. Cahokia, I mean, people are living in the area, but no one's saying, I built this. It's it's kind of just it's a ruin almost. And, you know, by the time Europeans are, we get, you know, Spanish explorers running around the southeast in the early 1500s. So, two hundred and fifty years? I mean, that's a long period of time, but definitely. We're not talking thousands of years later. We're talking the amount of time it took for it to build into a city. Suddenly, no one knows anything. No one's even talking about it. And I think that kind of ties back into what we're talking about. Why cities maybe didn't develop in this part of the world. You just... But perhaps they people just didn't buy into it anymore. I mean, Kokia, it seems in the beginning, people bought into the idea. People wanted to be part of it. They built it. They listened. You know, they, they followed, you know, what, you know, this ruler, or whoever, you know, I don't want to say ruler like that, but whoever maybe was a spiritual leader or maybe a warlord. We don't know. I would say, probably not warlord, but you know, someone with, with power. They listened. They built, they built Monks Mound. They built you know, these grand plazas and these massive earthworks. They built you know, celestial calendars that could be you know, aligned with astronomical events. They have earthworks aligned. I mean, there's all this stuff going on. But then a couple hundred years later, no one's doing it. they just just done. They leave. But they still bring things with them. So it's not as if they just said, oh, I don't want to live here anymore. I, I hate this. They seem to still identify with the culture. But for whatever reason, they just said, nah, I don't want to live here. I mean, like I said, it the same size as London at the time. The visit of London just said, no, okay, we're done. We're going to leave now. And it just kind of dissipated into the countryside. And then you know, the French show up in 1400 or whoever shows up in England, and they ask who built this. And people in the area say, well, um, I don't know. Not me. Right? I mean, it'd be crazy. You'd think, well, something happened. It seems as if people just didn't want to live there. Because so I think that brings back to what is urban, how do we look at urban areas in North America? And really, it's that, you know, it maybe it was a different animal, or maybe just there weren't the right events that happened. Because a lot of things in the study of the past are, you know, someone else does it, and the neighboring groups are emulating or copying it or utilizing the same thing. Or the idea is spread. And so they're, that may have just been the case that just we didn't have the right circumstances that happened. And the fact that just, you could, you know, there wasn't a whole, I mean, there were issues and difficulties people faced in Eastern North America, but for the most part, you know, there were a lot of subsistence options. And people were moving around. And so there really, never was a concentration of people in one area, people never, you know, if, if you, you know, people live in one area, a big concentration different groups of conflict may arise, even if it's not like warfare, you might not want to live that close. Well, in this sense, you move up river, resources are still good. You move further inland, maybe you're not along the same river, you're along a tributary, but there's still similar resources, still a good deal. There's no need to spend there. I, I had a, I took a hunter and gatherers course, and the professor, she described it as, you know, basically, you vote with your feet. If you don't like how things are going, just leave. And I think that idea can be kind of taken in general to these groups we see conflict occurring and we see people wanting to live in one area, maybe laying claim to the area, but at the same time, there is no, you know, it's, it's entirely, if you choose to stay in the area, and there are massive, you know, there aren't areas where just it's void. For, you know, we don't have a great basin or uh, again, people lived in those areas, we don't have a desert, we don't have, the, we don't have Death Valley, in Eastern North America. So I think that's important to remember. Just that. We need to, when we apply these ideas like urban areas or cities outside of like our own mindsets, we live in a very European, old world-influenced world. I mean, everything we do comes from over there. Not everything, but I think you get the point. So we need to kind of change that model. that cities, for one, weren't the, I mean, it wasn't, you know, fairly recently within the last ten years that more than half the world's population lived in an urban area. But even at the time when Europeans were meeting new world populations, basically you know, ninety percent of the world, we can expand it out from Europe, maybe even be generous and say eighty percent of the world are I don't know if it's generous or not, but aren't living in cities. Most people aren't living in cities. And so maybe if we look throughout history, we've had a lot you know, larger Prevalence, more impactful urban areas. The old world probably wins that. But at the end of the day, everyone was basically living the same. Cities pop up, cities go away. Some cities last longer than others, some don't. And at the end of the day, North America was no different. But there may have been some slight things that made it just less reliant on urban areas. And the people living there are less reliant on urban areas. And so I would caution anyone from viewing it as, well, why didn't they have cities? Maybe the question would be, why did Europe have, the old world even, have such a concentration of cities? Um, Because for the most part, for as long as people have been around, cities haven't been a thing. Or at least most people haven't lived in them. Even when cities were a thing, 90% weren't living in them. And it wasn't until recently that most people lived, more people lived in a city than didn't live in a city. And I think that, I mean, that right there is probably the takeaway, that cities are interesting for studying the past. They're really, really helpful, right? And you have a lot of people living there. You'll see ethnic groups, people living in cultural differences, right? You have communities forming, you have neighborhoods, and all this very exciting stuff. But we have to remember that that's a very small piece, of a very large picture. Um, you could say it's a page in the story. It's it's a specific chapter, these cities are. But there's a whole book of information out there that isn't covered with this. While it may be enticing to study cities, and, you know, there are a lot of you know, present-day applications, We say, because we live in cities and there are a lot of, you know, similarities. We may f- face similar issues. But we also have to remember that we're viewing it through our modern lens. And our modern lens focuses on states and cities and these very... Concrete institutions that, for a lot of history, didn't exist, and so maybe today, um, the the takeaway, like I said, is just that, just to be aware of your um, the bias that may be in place. That you may, you know, think that oh, cities are the default way, or that this is you know this is the study of history it's through the study of cities and urban areas, and you know. The old world was more advanced. Look at the cities. It's very looking at a very small piece of the puzzle, and a piece of the puzzle that probably isn't entirely accurate. And so I think that's a good point to wrap up this episode. Um, just the fact that urban areas are exciting; they're interesting, but they aren't the end all be all of study of the past. So if you're interested in them, feel free to keep learning on them. That's what got me into actually the recipient sites, it was taking a course on the kind of origins of cities. But also remember that, like anything else, it's a small part of the kind of larger fabric of history, and that focusing on them and kind of viewing that as the center of the world is doing a discredit to everything else and kind of painting a, a very skewed image of the past. And so if you want to understand the story that's in the soil, you have to n- be able to focus on every aspect of it. And so whether it's a site like Kalkia, which plays a huge role, or maybe lesser known sites that don't even have a name, or at least not a, not a name that is recognizable, they're all important, and they're all things that will help you to better understand history and the story of um, the world we live in. So thank you for listening. I hope we'll have a third episode up quicker um, than it took to make this one. It won't be nearly as long. If you have any ideas, feel free to uh, get in touch and contact me or whatever you want to do to questions you may have, comments, concerns, ideas. For later episodes or clarifications to the past two, feel free to let me know. Uh, But thank you for listening. And this has been The Story in the Soil, episode two.